I want to start with verse 13 then of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Um, I suppose I should ask one more time, are there any questions about the previous material? Uh, remind you of just a couple of things, because it really is important why Paul does what he does here in verse 13 and following. Uh, this is a church that's undergone significant persecution, uh, difficult. Uh, they had a person, a group, we don't know who it is or what the context was, but they were teaching that the day of the Lord had already begun because of that. Paul fires off this letter and says no, and he gives three reasons why. And we, we investigated those pretty thoroughly in our study. Now he comes back in verse 13 to consoling and comforting and strengthening them. And so he reminds them of a number of things about their, a number of things about their uh, position and about their walk with Christ. With the, the bottom line, uh, wanting to comfort them and strengthen them in the time of difficulty. A passage like this is a passage that would be very good for a group of uh, young people going off to college where they're, they're probably going to face a lot of attacks on their personal faith. That's just the nature of that. Uh, just to remind who, who you are in Christ and what God wants for you. Uh, certainly it would be uh, applicable and helpful to people in, a, in another culture where they're under intense persecution, even perhaps facing martyrdom. I mean, those kinds of things. So if you follow with me now, again, I just want to remind you of why these words would have been so important to them. But we ought on verse 13 now, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you. Okay, he had said that earlier. Brothers, beloved brothers and sisters, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Now, let's just look at that verse. It is loaded. It is loaded with great truth. So Paul again says, I'm just so thankful to the Lord for you guys at Thessalonica. You are loved by the Lord. You are love. I thought I would say that again. You know, nobody looked and they're just waiting. Okay, you're loved by the Lord. Do you, just think about that for a minute. Loved by the Lord. Now, Mark knows this, but you will search in vain through the Quran to ever see a verse that says Allah loves you. It's blessed me to say that. Hmm? In Islam, it is blessed me to say that. That's right. I mean, it's just it's a foreign concept. You will not find in Hinduism anything in the Rig Veda text or anything where the gods love you. But the center of genuine biblical Christianity is you are loved by the Lord, chosen by the Father, sanctified by the Spirit. Did you notice that? In verse 13, you have the Trinity. Loved by the Lord, chosen by God, sanctified by the Spirit. Now, I made some of the nouns into verbs, but that's the, the point. He's reminding them, as he thanks God for them, he's reminding them of who they are in their relationship with God. And for you and me, even today, I mean, it is really, really important to go back and just remind ourselves how important to God we really are. 
We're loved by the Lord. That's one of the titles of Jesus. Chosen by God. Presumably God the Father. As the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So he is, he's reminding them of one, who they are, and two, their response to God's, to God's revelation to them, to God's truth to them. They believed it. That's how the verse ends. They believed it. They believed what Paul and the other apostles taught them. They believed it, and they responded. <clears throat> I wanted you to note one other thing in the middle of the verse, something you don't see too often. I mean, you can sit close to me if you want, but that's all right. I understand. I'm not eating, so I'm <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> But first fruits to be saved. Um, just think about that for just a minute, because for the Thessalonians, for you and me, that isn't as uh, as meaningful, and it would be hard to necessarily see that as applying to you and me. But first fruits to be saved. Remember, you're in the very very early years of the church. Do you understand what I mean by that sentence? The very early years of the church. And with Pentecost, which is record, uh, the day of Pentecost, with the recorded for us in the book of Acts, you, you have the birth of the church, the beginning of the church. And the church is called the first fruits. What does first fruits mean? Okay, obviously you didn't hear that, so I'll repeat it. First fruits, what does that mean? It's an agricultural metaphor. The first to be harvested. The first to be harvested. So it's the first fruits to be saved. What is he sharing with the Thessalonian believers in the you know, about A.D. 60 or so? What's he sharing with them? You are the first ones of a whole bunch of people to come. Now, you know, just think about that for a minute. Is that comforting? Is that another message to them of how important to God they really are? I mean, I'm, I'm kind of answering my own question. But he's just reminding them, you guys, Thessalonians, you're in the middle of a very pagan city. You are being persecuted. It, it's costly for you to stand for your faith. But I want to remind you, you're, you're beloved by Jesus. You've been chosen by the Father. You've been sanctified by the Spirit. You believe the truth of all this. Oh, and by the way, you're the first fruits. That's not to puff them up and make them, feel, make them feel proud and arrogant. It's just a reflection again. This is how important you really are to God. I often, you know, I don't, I don't do any real counseling. It's more just pastoral type counseling. But every now and then I'll, I'll, a student or sometimes in Bible studies, where I talk with somebody and they're really wrestling with their self-image, who they are, you know, and a lot of reasons. And the, the, I, my, my classic response is always, I give them about five different passages to read. Just review who you are in Christ. How important am I to God? Well, verse 13 is a pretty nice place to start. This is how important you are to God. When my wife, um, when I first married my wife, and by the way, we just celebrated our 46th anniversary. Isn't I, just For me to utter that sentence is... We were, it was Sunday, and Sunday night we both, as we were lying in bed, we were just talking about it. And we said, 46 years. I mean, I've been married to Peggy much longer than I wasn't married to her. 
but also, I mean, I honestly, I can't remember when I wasn't married to her. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just can't even think about it. But, you know, it's 46 years, that's a really long time. But when I first married her, she really, she was the third of three sisters. And um, as often happens, she was always compared with her two other sisters. Well, you're not like Karen, who, or you're not like Linda, who, you know, I know I'm Peggy. <laughs> But anyway, and so uh, she always said two things. One, the best thing I ever did for her was take her away from Strasburg, Pennsylvania. And, and what she meant by that, so that she could develop her own strength, her own identity. She was no longer living in the shadow of her sisters. And not that that's, it was evil. It wasn't an evil thing that she was doing, but it was a struggle for her. And one of the things that really, really was meaningful to her was as she studied the Word of God, that's exactly what she was doing. Her favorite verse, she's memorized the whole psalm of Psalm 139. It's King David's reflections on how important to God he really is. And verse 16 is just a wonderful verse. Even when I was an unformed substance in my mother's womb, O Lord, you knew me. Now you can say it has a lot to do with prenatal life. Yes, it's important, but it really tells you this is how important to God I am. And the cure for self-image and self-worth issues, the cure for struggling with who am I, is see yourself the way God sees you in Jesus Christ. You come into the family of God through faith in Christ. You're really, really, really important to God. John chapter 10, Jesus says, I know your name. You're my sheep. And the sheep know, know the voice of their shepherd. I know your name. I call you by name. That, they're magnificent truths. That's what Paul's doing in this verse. Got it? Three of you got it. Okay. So it's just, it's, to, it's for them to be comforted and strengthened and how important they are. Verse 14. To this. To what? To salvation. To everything he's been talking. To this he called you through or by means of the gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whoa, hold it. Time out. Wait a minute. Okay, we got that called to you through the gospel. That's how we came to faith, through the gospel. But this is the intended result, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that was rhetorical. I'm not expecting you to answer that necessarily. Maybe you want to. But this is very theological. It's a very theological, it's a very doctrinal position. Where is Jesus right now as the God-man? Seated at the right hand of the Father. It, it speaks in the New Testament that that is a place of glory. That Jesus is now magnified and glorified and worshipped. Revelation 4, Revelation 5, we see that happening. All right, now, what is part of the destiny you have as a child of God? To go to heaven. To share in his glory. To share in his glory. In Galatians chapter 4 and Romans 8, we are promised as joint heirs of God, joint heirs of Christ, joint heirs with Christ, it's a number of ways, we will rule and reign with Christ. So, in a very real sense, Paul is saying, 
one of the reasons, it is not the only reason, there are multiple reasons, but one of the reasons God saved you, to use the language he's using here, is that you will share in the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I know we do not get excited about biblical truth in this room. We just don't. We're very passive, and that's okay. We're men. We don't get excited. The only thing that excites us is NASCAR races and football games. Boy, isn't it dripping cynicism? Isn't it awful? Because I'm a man. That's how I look at it. But that's a magnificent truth. That it may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We will share in his glory. We will rule and reign with him. He is now ruling. He's the Lord of the universe. The only place in the universe where that's disputed is on earth. Because some people don't accept that. Some people rebel against that. But those those who, to whom verse 13 applies, verse 14 reminds us of the promise that we will obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. How important are you to the Lord? There's another reason. Another reason to affirm why I am so valuable to the Lord. Does it help in line with that to to realize how much he suffered uh, to go to that cross for everyone around this table? Absolutely. I mean, it cost God dearly for us to be in this position. That's exactly right. But it, I mean, first of all, I, I just, because that's the context, do you understand why he's doing this? It's because of the nature of the Thessalonian believers. They're really, this is a difficult place to be. And reminding them of who they are, and that will lead him to the next verse, verse 15 and so on. So any, I mean, is there anything you want to talk a little more about? Do you want to review any? I mean, they're all, verse 13 and verse 14, they're just, those two verses are filled with doctrinal teaching, filled with sound doctrinal teaching. Okay, you got it all? Yeah. So when he um, brought us into existence, just like we bring one, you know, we, you know, if we adopt a kid or if you have a kid, then mm-hmm. that's your kid. Mm-hmm. And what is, is justice will allow for somebody to drift away even though he doesn't really want him to drift away or I mean he doesn't want us to be out of the times but he he wants to attract us. I mean, he's not he's not ever pushing us away. He's always trying to bring us in with the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. um, to, to reign with him. Uh, I, I guess I just I don't see how I don't see how how easy it is to drift away. How easy it is to come back. I mean, it's just kind of a complicated. I need some silver bullets, Jim. <laughs> Give us a list of ten things. No. <laughs> well, screw that up. No. Give us something easier. No, no. I think I could have resisted that apple. But, <laughs> you know, I don't think I would have. The Ten Commandments are in there and all that. Um, well, first of all, the, um, there, there's a lot. In what you're asking, Matt. I mean, you're asking a lot there. Well, but I'm saying I think right here that I mean, the, he knows us from yeah, birth. Yes. He's the one that brought us into existence, and and we're gonna. I mean, it's just amazing that we would be that we reign and rule. I mean, that's kind of powerful. It is. It isn't like we're just gonna be up there. 
Yeah. And this is in the coming in, kingdom of Christ. Right, That's right. right. We will rule and reign. Right. You rule and reign, and, and, yeah. and you're it. I just don't know how I could get from where I am right now to where I'm ruling and reigning. I mean, mm-hmm. to be with him. That's I wonder uh, how much is um, going to be left of me. <laughs> well, uh, part of how, the answer to the how question, which is what you're asking, it, the only answer to that is the grace of God. Right. There is no, I mean, it isn't that you've earned it, Matt. It isn't that I've earned it or merited it. We both are sinners. And regardless of the depth of our sin from which God saved us, we are, by his grace, joint heirs with his son. Now, the other part I heard you asking was drifting away. Now, that's another little bit of a different topic. and I don't know how far you want to go with that. But that we do know, and that the analogy the Bible uses is that when we put our faith in Christ, we become members of the family of God. God's are now our Heavenly Father. We are His children. And like children, your children, my children, as you're raising them, they drift away. They don't always obey. They don't always do what you want them to do. And therefore, as parents, we discipline our children. The Bible makes it very clear. Hebrews 12 is one of the great places to start with that. God disciplines those who drift away, to use your, your phrase. But God does that just like you do it. God's discipline, like when I disciplined my children, was not punitive. It was always restorative. That is, all, now, you understand what I mean? I mean, the, the, goal of, the goal that we're doing when we pursue discipline is not to punish. I mean, it, it, in other words, there may be punishment, but that's not the goal. The end isn't punishment. The end is what? Restoration. Bring them back, get them back on the track of obedience. They're listening to mommy and daddy. And I mean, that, I'm you know, putting it like it's a small child, but even as a teen, I mean, the goal is not, the end is not to punish. Punish is a means to the end of restoration. That's what God does. And we read earlier in, in this book of the Thessalonians that we, his child, uh, in, 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 by faith in Christ. We are not destined for wrath. That's not our goal. That, the goal, the end, is not wrath. That was taken by Christ. But that doesn't mean, and that again throughout the rest of the Bible, that doesn't mean that God our Heavenly Father said, okay, fire insurance is covered, the policy's been written, now do whatever you want, because you know, you know you're, you're saved. That is foreign to the New Testament. Now the relationship is so vital and the sanctifying work of God is so real that as we walk with God, we become more and more desirous to be obedient to him. And let me make one other comment, if I can. And I do this in my ethics class. You must understand the Ten Commandments as a protective function from the living God. Thou shalt not commit adultery is a protective commandment. It is protect the sanctity of marriage, the most important institution God ever created. And if you go outside those boundaries, does God give you the freedom to go outside those boundaries? Yes. But then you will experience the consequences of doing it. Thou shalt not lie. It preserves the sanctity of truth. That's very dear to God. Truth is one of his characteristics. And Jesus says when he's praying to the Father in John 17, Lord, thy word is truth. But it protects us 
from getting outside of truth. We don't misrepresent. We know what the truth is, and we commit to the truth. Thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt not steal. The, the sanctity of private property. Because private property is a stewardship God gives people. You manage it well. It doesn't belong to you. It's not yours. You don't have the responsibility to be a steward over that. I gave it to Matt. You can't steal it. And if you choose to steal, I mean, it's just, that's how we should look at those. They're not confining. They're not, rest- oh my, the restraints of God are so heavy. If that's how you look at the Ten Commandments, you're looking at them wrong. They are protective and freeing. Because our creator is saying, I'm laying out the boundaries for life because I created you and I'm telling you, this is the best way to live. And then I'm going to put my spirit inside of you, which is going to enable you to live that way. So you kind of keep getting back to the point, what really do I have to do with all this? Answer, nothing. I appropriate it to my life by faith. I live this life in dependence on God and I learn more as I... This is what sanctification is all about. I learned that through, maybe you could even say it through trial and error. I learned this. I learned the wisdom of trusting my God because I know what he's done for me. But we, you know, we, I'm like, Matt and I are very similar. I keep forgetting that I'm to live in dependence on the Lord. I say, oh, no, I'll handle this one, Lord. I'll take it from here. Usually that doesn't work out very well. We had a guest speaker on Sunday, Pastor Connie, and she, she simplified it pretty much. And she said, okay, every seed came from some root. And so if you if you cut off one of your branches and say, well, yeah, this isn't really what God wanted me to do. I'm just going to put this branch over here. If you cut it off from from God, you know, if you're... If you're I am the vine, you're the branches. Yeah. yeah, and if God's in your... Because you can, you know, part of your soul and, he's, and the spirit's living in you, but you have to cut off one of the branches so that it doesn't conflict with what he is. How long is that thing going to last? No. Not very long. No. You cut off a branch off a tree, you know, it might stay green for a day or two, but it. then it's dead. Mm-hmm. So then one of your branches is dead. Mm-hmm. And when I've never heard of it, they really explain like that. So she's saying, if there's a part of your life. You have to cut off from God because he's not really supposed to know about it. He knows about it, plus it's good. Not yeah, exactly. You know, he can't. Yeah. yeah that's so, nice. so that's kind of what I've been thinking about. You know, good. And then, and then when this came, and kind of just was trying to put all that together. Good. Good question. Yeah. Something that I'm just looking at this, and I'm looking at how important context is, because mm. you could read... I just got here from verse 13. Mm -hmm. But you could read 13 and 14 and say, boy, that's pretty nice. Don't have to worry. Unless you appreciate the sacrifice God made and the importance of the statements. That is, this is not given lightly. That's right. That's right. And for us, for us to be loved of the Father, loved of the Lord Jesus, chosen by the Father, sanctified by the Spirit, it costs God dearly for that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right, now look at verse 10. Uh, verse 10, excuse me, verse 15. Now, now the application of it. He's reminded them of who they are. So, therefore, stand firm. Oh, why is he saying that? Because remember, they're in a very difficult situation, persecution. So stand firm. This is a military term in the Greek language. It's a military term where you dig your hobnail boots deep into the sand and stay. You're an immovable. In other words, 
your, your, your position in Christ is secure. Now stand firm. The promises God made to you, you're going to share in his glory. Stand firm. And hold to, now it's, it's interesting how he puts this. Can, end of verse 15. Hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. What letters are you referring to? First Thessalonians. Right? I mean, this is Second Thessalonians. So he's referring to the previous letter. So he's just saying, we taught you all this stuff, and we reviewed it in our first letter. Hold fast to those things. So there was no Bible at that time, right? There was the Old Testament. By the time Paul writes this, two Gospels are perhaps circulating. Eleven of Paul's 13 letters, or excuse me, ten of Paul's 13 letters are circulating. Probably the book of Hebrews is circulating. Some, but you know, Mark, a lot of the heretical books come later. The Gnostic texts, you know what I mean by Gnostic? The Gnostic texts of second century. The Gospel of Thomas, which is one of the most famous, that was written in 175 A.D. And James the Just, when was that? James, the Epistle of James? No, James the Just, the uh, Ibn uh, stuff. Uh, I I don't off the top of my head I don't have all those pseudo-epigraphal letter dates I don't, I don't know, that's late, that's late, early one hundred. So they were really depending on what is taught to them at the church from Paul through letters or from the preachers there and, and like you said word of mouth. Yes, well yeah by our spoken word what they taught in other words what taught and remember. You tell, when you look at the book of Acts, you see that again and again and again. He reasoned with them from the scriptures. Paul is teaching the scriptures to them. And, um, well, anyway, so yes. I mean, it's just not, I'm just not, Paul, and this is what, it's just ridiculous to say this, but, well, Paul's just making all this stuff up as he goes along. No, he's not. That's not what he's doing. And, I mean, you see there's a clear connection continually with the Old Testament because it's the Old Testament being fulfilled. All right. Um, now, verse 19, I'm sorry, not 19, 16, but you see, you see what he's doing in verse, uh, verse 15. He's just saying, because of who you are, 13 and 14, now verse 15, stand firm, hold fast. And that's, boy, that's important. Because when you're under persecution, people are challenging you and throwing you in prison and you're facing martyrdom, I give up. I'm wrong. I'll give up. I I don't believe this anymore just to save my life. Paul says, no, stand firm. Hold fast. So then he goes into a little prayer. And that little prayer starts in verse 16. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace... And then the prayer, verse 17, comfort you and so on. But notice again, in verse 16, you have that equality of the Father and the Son, which, by the way, theologically is really important. But you have the equality, the Lord Jesus himself, God our Father, who loved us, gave us eternal comfort and good hope through hope. Now notice there's three words there. Again, you see it for the second time. He loves us. 
I, I mentioned it a moment ago, and I just think it's worth repeating. Honestly, guys, that is one of the most important distinctives of biblical Christianity. You do not see that in other world religions. It is totally absent in Islam. It is non-existent in Hinduism. Buddhism, you turn inwards, you just love yourself. <laughs> I mean, it's just, but, but the Bible is saying God loves us. And so he's reminding them that again. And what has he given us? Eternal comfort. Now think about that for a minute. Eternal comfort. Etern how is eternal comfort? Why, why is he saying that? What does he mean by that? What do you think? What do you think he's meaning by that? Based on everything we've been talking about. Eternal comfort. He doesn't say comfort. He says eternal comfort. Okay, the ever-present nature of God. Well, is the nature of God. You are going to be there with, with grace with God. So when he says eternal, it was contradicting to the mindset of people that think that they're going to die and that's it. Or he's giving them eternal. It's permanent. Permanent. A permanent, ongoing, eternal comfort. What other words come to your mind when you think of the word comfort? Say it again. Assurity. Okay. Heaven. Well, a place, heaven, yeah. But, it, you know, it, it's, we've said this so many times in our classes. God makes eternal promises to us that should affect present behavior. Because this is what the future is like for you here. This should affect how you live. So eternal comfort. How is eternal comfort relating to how you live now? Peace and hope. Peace and hope. Uh, my God, and Fred said, my God is always with me. Lord, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, the Lord Jesus says. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. So because of verse 13 and 14 and the eternal dimension of that, my God will never leave me. There's no problem I face that will be greater than God. There's no enemy I will face eyeball, eyeball to eyeball that's greater than God. Even if death stares me in the eyes, my God promises to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. That's eternal comfort. Nothing, nothing can overcome the love God has for me, and that's comforting to me, because it's eternal. <coughs> Everyone around this table probably, at least if I'm not unique, I don't think, has gone through a time where we don't think perhaps, or we don't feel the presence of God, we feel hopeless and vulnerable. Um, and yet, there's, I, I remember that verse, I believe, God help my unbelief. Like, help me during this time. Secure my belief. Reaffirm my so, um, Can you comment on that? Well, Cause, yeah. cause some people might think, well, I can't say that, otherwise, I'm almost saying I don't believe. I don't feel that's the case. I don't know how you look at that. How do you look at that? Let me answer, answer it by asking a question. 
if God is putting us through the process or taking us, that's maybe a better way to say it, taking us through the process of sanctification. And by now I hope you know what that term means. We've talked about it so many times. What would you say is the primary objective God has for the process of sanctification? What does he want us to learn? To be conformed to him. Say it again, please. To be conformed to him. To be conformed to him. Okay, that's the goal. That's the end. Absolutely. What does he want us to learn? I mean, that's what he's doing. We're being transformed. But what does he want us to learn along the way? The adequacy and the sufficiency of trusting in him. When Jesus was with the twelve, what did he keep saying to them? O ye of little faith. In other words, and I believe this with all my heart, the primary objective, now I didn't say goal, the objective of the sanctifying work of God in our lives is to teach us dependence on him. You, without me, you can do nothing. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. I'm quoting verses of scripture. Now, Fred, how do we learn faith and trust in God? Sometimes through difficult circumstances. Sometimes through the, you know, the New Testament uses the words like the trials of life. And sometimes even, and this is, the, this is one of the hardest things for me and Peggy yet, because we've, we've been through a lot together, particularly with her health, but it's, it's, it's the, Lord, it doesn't seem to us that you are hearing our prayer. That silence means he's not hearing us. It's a wrong conclusion. Jesus says, knock, and it shall be opened. Seek, and you shall find. Ask, and you shall receive. God, the certainty that God hears our prayers. But his answers are such that it may take a while because sometimes there are just a whole bunch of other things that have to happen before he can really answer the prayer. Or it's a time of testing and growing of our faith. And so I think it is very, very appropriate as the father of that daughter in the Gospel of Mark said to Jesus, Lord, I believe, but help thou mine unbelief. It sounds like a, that's a crazy prayer. I believe, statement of faith, but help my unbelief. What it means is, Lord, I trust you, but boy, this is a big one, Lord. I just don't think I have enough faith to trust you with this one. My daughter is dying, and I don't think I have enough faith to trust you with that. I think it's too big for you. and Because that's, in a sense, what we're saying. This is too big for you, God. I can't trust you with this. Right? No, God is saying, no, no, no. I can handle this, too. Um, one of the things that, that I've uh, observed is that people who are... Uh, you know, believe that Jesus is our Lord and Savior mm-hmm. is, is one thing. But they don't often understand the depth of his love. Yeah. And the unconditional love. Yes. And I, there's one incident that comes to mind. Uh, I knew a meth addict. Mm-hmm. 
who believed in God but was just destroying her life mm. until she understood that he loves her mm. unconditionally no mm. matter what happens. Mm. Changed everything. Yeah. Wow. So but Fantastic. that's I, I've known I've observed that in many times. Mm. That's a really good comment. That really is of of really coming to terms with the unconditional love that God has for us. You know, that is really that is really profound. That single point. Yeah, it really is. Can change yeah. It it really can. And mm-hmm. it's and, and it I think it's why well, it's so instructive that twice in this short section we're reading you see that mentioned twice that God loves us. And how how radical and revolutionary that is. And and you are correct in putting that adjective in front of it, unconditional love. He certainly he is he doesn't love me because of what I've done. I mean that that isn't why he loves me because, you know. And I think we all of us around this table could say it. that isn't the reason he loves us. Because if he really loved me because of what I've done, I didn't give him any reasons to love me. I mean, I really didn't up until I came to faith in him in 1972. I there were no reasons for him to love me there. And it's just it's this amazing truth. That God loves people because he created them and he seeks and he's redeemed them and he seeks to have a relationship with them. But it's got to be on his terms because he's the holy righteous God. And he's made the terms possible because of Christ. Now the Thessalonian believers got it. And now he's trying to move them along to increase trust and faith in God. So stand firm. Hold fast. And then there's one other thing I wanted to, to comment on in the, the first part of verse 16. Loved us, gave us eternal comfort and good hope. And so that's kind of, that sounds almost a little odd. But the gave us, gave us eternal comfort and gave us good hope. Do you understand? The gave us, the verb gave us, is what is governing, gave us good hope. Now, that's almost funny, good hope. Does that mean there's such a thing as bad hope? <laughs> but what is he getting at when he says hope? He not only loves us and gave us eternal comfort, but gave us, gave us hope. Now, we've talked about hope so many times, so somebody want to take it from there? What's hope? Yep, all the promises of that. Assurance, absolutely. Certainty. Is a wish a hope? I wish this would happen? No, not really. Because a wish lacks something. A wish lacks certainty. Hope has certainty. A a wish is, it's sort of a, you know, if I could frame it and design it perfectly the way I want it, that's a wish. Whereas hope is there's a certainty. All, all the elements and aspects of my future as they relate to God are already laid out. There's a certainty about that. I'm his child. He's coming back for me. Or Jesus is coming back for me. He's going to give me a new body. I'm going to rule and reign with him. I mean, all those things, that's part of the hope. So it's a hope that motivates us. I had a, a, a professor one time who defined hope as expectancy with desire. 
expectancy. I expect this to happen. I, I would maybe use another word. I, I'd use certainty, but he went with that. Expectancy with desire. What's that mean? I desire this. I want this. I'm looking forward to this. And if we understand the New Testament correctly, the next event is Jesus coming back for us. So that's my hope. I expect that to happen, and I want that to happen. So he's saying that, not, I mean, just think of this. Think of how he's phrasing this. God loves us, and he gives us eternal comfort to hang in there and persevere. And this goes on into eternity, but also hope. God gave us this. And that's why I stressed the verb. Who gave us this? God did. I didn't earn this. I didn't merit this. I didn't finally get enough stamps in my book where God says, okay, now you're in. He gave this to me. And then he tells us what motivated God to give us this. His grace. See that? Through grace. Through grace. I didn't merit this. It is God's grace that explains it. Every one of us around this table, if you put your faith in Christ, you are a trophy of God's grace. It tells us in the book of Ephesians, he will hold us up in eternity before the angels and say, angels, here is what this has been all about. These people who are in heaven, this is what it's been all about. And I mean, that's just, wow. That's again, it's how important we are to the Lord. <coughs> I'm still struggling with the certainty versus a positive expectation. And I wonder if the good, good hope, yeah. does that differentiate between something that we expect that will happen good, but might not necessarily? If it's good hope, it means it's valid. And it adds that element of certainty. I'm struggling on this question. I think, yeah, I follow. Uh, I think I follow your question. That's a very valid question, a very good question. The idea of good there, agathos, is a positive, affirming hope. You know what I mean? It's it's a it's a positive, affirming hope that keeps me going. It's a positive, affirming hope that like a laser-like focus, I'm on that. Because everything else around me seems to be collapsing and falling apart, and I'm getting old, my body's starting to fall apart, and that's me speaking, and all the things that, but I like a laser-like focus, my focus is on that good hope of all of the positive, affirming promises God's made to me. And number one is he's coming back for me. That's a good thing. Number two, he's going to give me a brand new body. Oh, that is a really good thing. And number three, I'm going to, I mean, it's just on and on and on. They're all good, positive, affirming things. But again, what governs all this is grace. I'm so glad he added that because God gave us all of that through grace. And that's, that, that levels it. That's a leveler. Grace levels there is nobody, there's no one in heaven that's going to ever stand with their thumbs in their, th- we don't wear suspenders anymore, but suspenders and say, I am here because I did this, 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 and this, and I'm better than you are. Won't happen in heaven. Because Matt and I are going to be in heaven, I mean, he's just to my right, so I'm naming him, but Matt and I and everybody else, when, when we get to heaven, it'll be for exactly the same reason. 
we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not because we earned it, not because I did better than you did. Dear people, Christianity is not an improvement program. That's not what it is. But you already know that. All right. Now let's look at what he's what he wants now from this. A reminder of all these verse seventeen. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father, who loved us, gave us eternal comfort, hopes through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Now, comfort your hearts. It's the same word, comfort your hearts, because this is they're in harsh, difficult times. Comfort your hearts. But notice, establish them in every good work and word. You see, the right order of things in God's economy is salvation by grace, through faith, establish who you are in Christ, etc. Then, then the things that are pleasing to God follow. The good works, the good words. Because as God works in our lives, salvation is in all the process of sanctification, we begin to see. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 tells us we were created for good works. Not saved by good works. We were created for good works. But what follows verse, or what precedes verse 10 is 2, 8, and 9. For by grace through faith you are saved, not of works, not sin, man should boast, etc., etc., so it's the same, it's the same pattern here. What God wants to see then as the impact of sanctification are the good works and good words that are done to his glory. Not to merit. That's taken care of. This isn't a self-improvement program. This is a walk with the living God, so what we do brings honor and glory to him. Just a great passage. All right. Any question? Two down, one to go. At the rate we're going through these letters, it'll be March till we're done. No, I'm just kidding. But we, chapter three is not difficult. Any further questions? Okay. All right. Verse. Um, verse one of chapter three. Um, I call this in your notes, I call it a holiness for the church. Finally, brothers and sisters, pray for us. Okay, this is Paul. Paul's down in Corinth. We talked about that when we first studied. He's down in Corinth. Way down, there's up Macedonia, they're way down in Corinth. Pray for us. Now notice, and this is how ESV translates this, but this is really interesting. Pray for us that the word of the Lord, and that's the gospel, the word that's centered on Jesus, that's the gospel. May, look at this is how ESV translates. May speed ahead and be honored as it happened among you. I just, I just like that translation. May speed ahead. Sounds like he's an American writing after the Indianapolis 500 or after, what did we just see? The uh, Belmont, Belmont. Uh, the other day. Wasn't that kind of cool that Americans were? I just thought that was kind of cool. I think everybody in the world was was cheering for that horse. You know, I don't even know anything about that, but I just thought it was really neat. Okay, may speed ahead. 
may may it make the thought behind that is may it meet may it meet steady progress and be honored acknowledged as coming from God positive as it happened among you verse 2 that we may be delivered from the wicked and evil men for not all have faith negative there's a positive response to the gospel. There's a negative response to the gospel. Positive response to the gospel, Paul says, as it happened among you, meaning the Thessalonians, the guys and gals to whom he's writing this letter. You responded. But there are some who don't respond. That we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. Who are the wicked and evil men? who have chosen rebellion against God, chosen to, rebe- to reject the gospel, chosen to reject the word of the Lord. It isn't like, boy, somehow I missed them. No. They've chosen to reject them. C.S. Lewis, in his wonderful book called The Great Divorce, says... To some people, God is going to say at the judgment day, people will stand before him and say, Thy will be done, O Lord. To others, he's going to look them in the eyes and say, Thy will be done. He's going to send them to judgment. Nobody, listen, anybody that goes to hell is because they chose that. C.S. Lewis says in that same book, hell is the greatest monument to human freedom there is. You've got to think about that for a minute. But he's right. No one will be judged by God, by a God who is impulsive, inconsistent, having a bad day. It will be because they chose they had multiple, every human being has had multiple opportunities to respond to God's grace. And every one, they choose not to do it. They choose not to follow. They reject the presence of the Lord in their lives. So in a very real sense, eternal judgment is just a trajectory of the choices people are making now. There's nothing illogical. There's nothing unjust about that. So Paul is saying there are two types of people who respond to the gospel. Those who respond as you Thessalonians did, as it happened among you, and those who reject. Those for not all have faith, not all respond in faith to the gospel. And he says they're the ones, they're the wicked and evil ones that are pushing back and rejecting and making making life difficult because they reject the grace of God. I think some of us in our minds have certain select categories that wouldn't fall under that statement that you made, Jim. Can you speak to that point, like the aborigines and the people off and far, whatever? Remember we looked at that a couple weeks ago. We looked at Romans 1, 2, and 3. God, there are four major revelations of God. There's creation, there's conscience, there's the moral law, and there's Jesus. And every, every human being is exposed to those. 
Now, they may not, they may not know about Jesus per se as a person, but they have the creation of God, the conscience that God puts, and the moral law, which is built into the human heart. The Bible seems to tell us as people respond to these revelations, God keeps giving more and more revelations to respond. He gets more and more specific. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 1, nobody will stand before God and say, I never knew about you. I didn't know you existed. You should have told me you existed. And that's just an untenable position to hold. Nobody's going to be able to say that. It seems Paul over here did not have a very hard time uh, making a distinction between the believers and non-believers, and the sinners and non-sinners. But the church nowadays trying to make us feel like we are not supposed to condemn anybody or say anything wrong about anybody. Mark, I'm not sure what to do with your comment there. I'm not sure what to, sure to do with that. I see it too, and I see yeah. you know, this, this fascination with being non-judgmental. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, again, I'm not sure what to do How with that. How can we walk this line? Yeah. Well, I think... I think there are two there are two very, very, very important principles in the scriptures. And point number one is that our concern in terms of people's lifestyles and behavior is within the church. Paul says to the Corinthians, do not be concerned about people outside the church, which leads to the second comment, God will deal with them. In other words, I and what I and what I mean by that is let's you know let's suppose that Andrew is not a believer and he's living a horrible life, and I go up to him and pound him in the in the head and hit him over the head with my Bible and all of those things and say you were doing evil evil things. Now I mean in a sense I might want to do, but my my role is not to condemn him. Jesus says in John chapter three verse seven, I did not come into the world to condemn the world. It stands condemned. It knows it's condemned. I came into the world to give another way to live. And I'm paraphrasing, but salvation. So instead, my message to Andrew, as an unbeliever, is not to condemn him. My, uh, my role is to tell him, Andrew, there's another way to live. You're struggling with this and this and this. There's another way to live. You don't have to live like this. In other words, I'm saying, Andrew, you're going to hell. Well, that may, he, I don't think he is because I know him. But what I mean is, no, that's not my primary message. Do you know what I mean? Now, in the church, from the pulpit, and Jonathan Edwards did a famous job on this, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and if you ever read his famous sermon from 1737. But that, that's in the church. My, my role outside the church is I'm to show him another way to live. I'm to give him hope. I'm to explain to him that God really loves him and wants a relationship with him. I mean, so I'm not, I don't have to tell Andrew, you're a sinner going to hell. Maybe that would come up, but that's not my primary message. You know, I don't look at every human being and I say, you're going to hell. That, that's not the message. This is judgmental. If you got somebody that's going to go to hell, this is, I'm calling myself as God and calling the sentence of the person. I think, you know, even when I'm talking to Andrew, sorry, Andrew, <laughs> uh, it's talking about. <laughs> 
I'm not a good example. I'm, I'm sure I should share Jesus as a good example. And you and Andrew, me and Andrew, both of us need Jesus. Well, yeah. So this is what uh, we should we share. But we should call the sin as a sin regarding to Jesus, according to Jesus, according to the Bible, not according to me. The, what I see about the sin is doesn't matter to anybody. But what Jesus sees as a sin, and he says in, as a sin in the Bible, should be our verb that we can use as say, Jesus said, this is a sin. My, Andrew's accountability is not to me, if he's an unbeliever. His accountability is to God. He doesn't answer to me, he answers to God. And if he doesn't make that response of faith, he will stand before God at the great white throne. And so what our message is, as believers, our message is a message of hope. There is another way to live your life. Now, Grant, I mean, there are so many, but my message is not, you're going to hell. Now, that may come up in the conversation, but that's not the primary message to him. My primary message is there, there is a there is a person who loves you, who's given himself for you. He is the God man Jesus Christ, and he wants to have a relationship with you. And I mean, it's it's getting around. It's always coming back to Christ, and so it's those two things. Our message is a message of hope and love, and we deal with the issues in the church. If there are sinners in the church, we deal with that. That's our responsibility. You know, but Paul says Paul says this. James says this. Those of you who are spiritual, you help the wandering ones to come back. That's the, the phrase at the end of chapter 5 of James. Help the wandering ones to come back. That's my, they're in the church, though. So those outside the church, my, my message, my mission, my goal is not to judge them. Because Jesus says they're already judged. They're already condemned. My message is... God is holding you accountable, but he has another way for you to live, but it starts with coming to understand who Christ is. I want to talk to you about Jesus. And that's the, Bill Fay says, you, you start the conversation, you know, you, you, very innocuous, very, in this postmodern world, you know, I'm just curious, listen, having a cup of coffee, you know, I'm not now, but having a cup of coffee, I'm, Andrew, just curious, uh, you and I have been friends now for about five, six months, I'm just curious, who's Jesus to you? And Andrew says, oh, he's a great man, he's a great ethical Jesus. That's, okay, good, boy, I like that, I agree. Do you know what Jesus claimed about himself? Well, I sort of remember that in Sunday school class when I was five, but no, not too much. And you just, okay, well, I'm, Andrew, would you mind a couple more minutes if I share who Jesus is to me? I'm asking permission because in the postmodern way of thinking, the sovereign person autonomous person is kind of the most important individual in the universe, so you want to ask permission instead of saying, you stupid idiot, would you let me tell you about Jesus? No. I'm at, you know. and, and, and Faye says, as they respond, you just can sense the Holy Spirit's at work. Or if they keep, no, I don't want to talk about this. Okay. Don't feel guilty about it. Don't feel bad about it. Holy Spirit hasn't prepared them. They're not ready. Don't sweat it. Don't worry about it. But it's those it's looking, Roman McManus calls it, there's looking for those divine appointments. When somebody comes across your path. If you have an opportunity, I'm just curious, who's Jesus to you? We've known each other for a while. You know, it's that kind of thing. So our message is not, Andrew, you're going to hell if you don't trust Jesus. That's probably not going to really work very well in the 21st century. That's just not going to work well. But you start, because see, what we got to get people to do is consider the claims of Christ. 
And when they really, if the Holy Spirit's at work, they really start to honestly look at the claims of who Jesus is. Who I am, who Jesus is. So Paul is saying, you respond to the Thessalonians. You responded to it. It happened among you. Oh my goodness, why didn't you tell me it was late? Okay, <laughs> next week. Next week we'll pick up with verse 3. Because now, in, in contrast to those who have no faith, but the Lord is faith. Oh, it's a great verse. Pick up with verse 3. All right, let me pray. Father, we've, uh, I'm sorry I've gone over time here with the men. I know they're busy, so I hope they'll still be able to make any appointments or whatever they might have. Thanks for our time together, reminding us again through this Thessalonian letter, God loves us. We are in the process of being sanctified. The Father has chosen us. We have a relationship with you. And he repeats it again. God loves us, gives us eternal comfort, gives us hope, good hope, through your grace. Lord, that's who we are in Christ. If everyone, I trust everyone around the table has done that, has made that faith commitment to Jesus, this is talking about them. Uh, we are so important to you. We are the... As the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians, we are the trophy of your grace. You hold us up to the angels and say, this is what it's all about. And so that's how important we are to you. We thank you for that enormous, eternally significant privilege of having a relationship with you. And we look forward to uh, living each day for you, trusting and growing in our faith in dependence on you. Help us to be good representatives in all we say and do of you and your grace. In Christ's name we pray, amen. See you next week.